I read a brief article yesterday that caught my attention. The title of it alone uh, caused me to take a closer look and see uh, what the author had to say. And the title was, Why We Really Get Depressed During the Holidays. And I thought, you know, we're reluctant to admit that sometimes. Uh, and, and especially when you hear uh, some of the familiar Christmas songs, like it's the most wonderful time of the year, and in many ways it is. But I just want you to listen to a couple of paragraphs from this article and, and note the things that the author touches on that often create that sense of, of depression or stress or discouragement. The author writes, the holiday season can be stressful. People are often busier. Trying to balance work and personal obligations can lead to more stress. It can also be a financially stressful time, since gift-giving and events can take a toll on your wallet. And while holidays are a time of joy, people sometimes have unrealistic expectations for how special something is going to be. This can lead to feelings of letdown later if those aren't met. Similarly, people may be more likely to compare themselves to others during this time of year. It's easy to look at someone's holiday card and think their life is more perfect than it really is. Any of you have a, at least a momentary thought of that? You look at that card and part of you is like, oh, brother. Now, I'm, I'm sure no one else has thoughts like that. This can lead to assuming everyone else around you is happy and you're the odd one out. The holidays are also stereotypically a time to be surrounded by family or loved ones. This can bring up painful reminders of other emotions. There could be a family conflict that's been going on for a while, or it could be the first holiday season after the passing of someone you love. That can re-trigger feelings of grief and loss and be incredibly challenging. And it can and often does. And you think through those particular categories that the author touched on, and you might even come to a place at the very end and say, you know, if I had the opportunity to share a few things from my own life and experience with this author, I would also add. And you would fill in that blank with something from your heart, maybe that you've never even expressed with someone. The holidays very often become a time where the struggles of our heart and soul are actually exposed in ways that we don't want them to be exposed. We didn't ask for this. We didn't ask for some of these feelings or memories to come flooding back. We didn't ask for the sense of stress, and I'm sure all of us are glad for the busyness to to be in the rearview mirror, at least a little bit. We still have to take down Christmas decorations and some of that kind of stuff. And for all the celebration that's underway, for many people, it really is a struggle. There's a conflict in the soul, in the depths of the heart. I wonder what the struggles of your heart and soul are this morning. And if you've even had time to reflect on those, and, and some of you would say, I don't want to think about it. And others of you would say, I can't get away from it. But one of, the, one of the glorious things about this Christ we've been singing of and this word that we're opening right now is that he knows exactly what is taking place in your heart, in the depths of your soul, things that you might not want to talk about or things that you've verbalized to others and it, at this point have found no relief, no help, no escape. And he actually wants to come to you and meet you right where you are and change you from what you are into something more remarkable than you could even fathom. Now today we come to the fourth part of a little Christmas series that Matt and I have partnered in on why Jesus came. And we've been looking at actually some non-traditional Christmas texts. Now they've all been about Jesus. 
So it's not like we have uh, you know, just delved into philosophies of life or a little self-help formula that might make it easier to get through the holidays. No, we're interested in why Jesus came. And not just from a sentimental perspective where we would sing and talk about you know, the manger and shepherds and wise men and, and all of those important characters of the nativity story itself, but there are things even beyond uh, what, the, what the Christmas story in and of itself reveals to us. And so we began this little four-part series at the beginning of December looking at John 1, verses 14 through 18, and noting that it says very explicitly that Jesus came to reveal the invisible God a God we would not know and a God who we would wrongly, uh, wrongly assume is a particular way or possesses certain attributes. And you could look at the religions of the world and see all kinds of ideas and notions about God. And yet Jesus entered the world that we might know the living God. Then Matt led us to, to Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 30, where we read that Jesus came to give us rest. And it's a particular rest, not just of a physical or mental nature, but of a spiritual nature. Because again, left to ourselves, we develop all these systems of of faith and sacrifice and service and zeal and worship that become overwhelming and exhausting. And Jesus came to remove all of those man-made yokes of religion and call us to step into a yoke that he had has fashioned for us, and he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me and learn, and you will find rest for your souls. And then last week, again, under Matt's uh, care and leadership, we looked at Mark 10, that Jesus came to serve us in our need. He did not come to be served, even though as king, we all should serve him, but he came to lay down his life, specifically as the ransom for us the one who would pay the sin debt we could never pay on our own. And so today, we're gonna go to the Gospel of Luke, but not chapter two, where you might expect at Christmas season. I want you to go to chapter four with me, and I want you to follow along as we read Luke 4, 16 through 30. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And now Jesus reads, it's Isaiah 61, for those of you who would be interested in that, and you should go back and read that entire chapter. But Jesus is just going to read a portion of Isaiah's word, and here it's recorded in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three, and three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these words, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray together. Father, we open your word in faith and in hope with great expectation that by your spirit you will illuminate our minds that we may understand your word, that you will awaken our souls, that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not just another son, not just another man or great teacher or prophet, but that he is the living God come in flesh to rescue, to redeem, to free those who are enslaved. So open our eyes, Lord, in heart, in soul, in spirit, that we may see him and believe and live as he desires. We thank you, our God and King, for the great gift that Jesus is. And thank you that at at his departure, the Spirit has come. And we ask, Spirit of God, that you would quiet our hearts and minds from every distraction, that you would drive away the evil one who would snatch the precious life-giving seed of truth that you will sow into our souls. And we ask, Spirit of God, that you would grant to us all things that we are in need of on this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this particular point, Jesus enters a community of great need. It's easy to think of a place like Nazareth in terms that are distant, long ago, a different culture, a different people, different needs even. But in many ways, their community is no different from the community that you and I live in. People going about their everyday business, many of them rising day by day to work hard, to make a living, to make ends meet. And here in this particular community that Jesus himself had grown up in, as we read a moment ago, there are tremendous needs. Now you would say, how would we know that there are needs? Well, you can look at two things that we've already begun to to see in Luke 4. And one is the nature of Christ's message. That is the things he begins to touch on. And as he was reading from Isaiah's prophecy, he touched on no less than four particular items that we're going to explore in just a moment. And then you can see as he moves from those moments of preaching and teaching to activity, when you see the work he does, it also reveals the great needs in the community. The question, though, is do the people themselves recognize that they are the ones who have the great need? And some did, and some did not. Now, just by way of quick summary, he had had spoken of, of several words that intrigue us, poverty and captivity and recovery and favor. Well, these are lost on many of us because we feel like, well, that's not where I am. But let's not miss the message that Jesus has been anointed to proclaim. He said, as he was reading from Isaiah 61, look at verse 18 once again 
I've been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. Those three words, proclaim good news, are actually just one word in the original text. It's helpful for us to to see all of that and understand, and and some of you already are tracking, saying, well, that's probably the same word that we translate in other places as the gospel, and you would be accurate. It's in the same uh, word family. But notice that it is a proclamation of good news, or it's gospel for the poor. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, certainly Jesus cared about the economically disadvantaged, and he did. But this particular passage, both as Isaiah Isaiah wrote it 750 years before Jesus reads the scroll on a Sabbath day in that synagogue, was not referring to the economically disadvantaged. He, as prophet of old, and Jesus as a unique voice in that synagogue on that Sabbath were speaking of the spiritually impoverished. And you know, for all its religions of that day and for all of the religions of our day, you think of of the Judaism that was prominently practiced in that Jewish culture. There were Samaritans nearby who had their own version of Old Testament worship. You had the polytheism of Rome and Greece. You had the fertility cults that were still in operation. The world was in a state not just of confused spirituality, but of impoverished spirituality because so many of them did not know the living God. It's much like our world today. And every example from religious examples to non-religious, people who live and operate day by day go about all that ordinary, important business with no thought of the God who created them in their souls. But Jesus arrives and says, I have been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to those who recognize the bankruptcy of their spirituality. He's come to present not just a system of religion that would, would make people feel good or a philosophy that kind of like, you know, makes, makes individuals sit up or perk up a little bit or, or feel like, well, now I have a cause to live for. No, live for. no, he is speaking to those who would say, I am poor. I love how one author describes this particular poverty as those who sense their need and have no delusions of power, control, and independence. Delusions of power, control, and independence. A lot of us live with those every day, don't we? And we rise and think that we're in control of the moment or the job or the family or even you know, something as simple as the coffee maker. And then stuff breaks, doesn't it? Yeah, from your coffee maker to your relationships. And you and I have to come face to face with this great reality at some point that we really don't have power. We're not in control, and we're not independent creatures. You know, if you sense and know your spiritual poverty this morning, you're actually in a really good place because the one who stood before that assembly in Nazareth synagogue so long ago stands before you and me today and invites us to come. And he says, I have good news for you in your bankruptcy And his purpose is not to leave you there to figure it out and pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. That's exhausting. That's the very kind of thing that Matt was speaking to us about from Matthew 11. Jesus knows the exhaustion that comes from trying to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. 
Now, what is this good news? Well, there are three particular aspects, and as Jesus presses on reading Isaiah 61, he says, I've been anointed by the Spirit to announce a great work. And so it, the, the word proclaim uh, appears twice in some of our English versions, but there are actually two different terms that are, are being put forward. And that first is to proclaim the good news. That, that's the gospel word. Well, this actually refers more to the, to the activity of of announcing or heralding the gospel. And so there are three particular things that Jesus says, I've been anointed by the Spirit to announce. First of all, liberty. And that has to do with a release from someone or something that enslaves or imprisons. And we're actually gonna see some beautiful examples of this unfold for us. But Jesus says to announce liberty, that is to herald something to the captives, those who actually are confined or imprisoned, and then a second word, look at the text with me, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That has to do with being weakened, crushed, if you will, crushed in spirit, weakened to the place where you just say, I can't go on, I, I can't do this. I'm in such a desperate place. Yeah, I, I long ago realized I have no power, no control, no independence, but I, I'm, just, I'm just out of energy. I have no spirit left in me. Well, he's announcing liberty. Well, there's a second announcement, and that is the recovery of sight. Look at verse 18 with me. The, the ability to see or understand. Now, all throughout the Gospels, the life and ministry of Jesus operates in the physical realm and the spiritual, and, and the physical realm is so important to him, and we don't want to minimize in, in, that as if he's just like giving us really helpful illustrations for what takes place spiritually. I did a little research in, in preparation for this, and just out of curiosity, I, the thought occurred to me, how many blind people does Jesus heal in the Gospels? And there are eight individuals who... Uh, whose stories are recorded, and then there are at least two other occasions where it just makes general reference to blind people being healed. Now, those of you who've struggled with issues of sight would appreciate this more than those of you who've just grown up you know, with great vision. And um, there, there, there's probably a spectrum here of issues and challenges. I remember years ago in my early 40s, I actually stood up to preach on a Sunday morning, opened my notes and looked down, and it was blurry. And I mean, I was really caught off guard. I was like, what, what is this? And I realized if I moved back about arm's length, things came back into focus. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. Well, just age itself can create sight issues, can it? And I had to break down. The first, the first step I took was just to get reading glasses, right? And, and then even in the preaching thing, you know, so I'd, so I'd put them on and I would read and then I'd take them off and I'd put them on. And I had people coming in and say, would you please stop doing that? Go get a pair of progressives. You know, like, it's a little bit of a distraction to some of us out there. And part of me is like, you know, deal with it. <laughs> it's a distraction to me too, but like, don't make this bigger than it is. The Lord is not simply proclaiming he's come to set up a, a medical clinic to, to heal the physical eyesight issues of the people of his day. Now he's gonna do that because he, his heart is so full of compassion and even those physical illnesses and diseases and, and handicaps are all evidence of, of sin that has corrupted his world. So he is gonna begin to overturn that but more than that he's interested in bringing spiritual sight to blind people. It's easy to forget 
that there is a deep blindness in our day. Paul wrote of it when he wrote the second letter to the Corinthians and said that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers lest they should see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, he says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, he's quoting Genesis, right? Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, it is a praise to God that he recognizes the spiritual blindness is actually far greater and damning than physical blindness. And Jesus says, I have an announcement to make. I've come to cure this spiritual blindness. Well, there's a third announcement here, and that is of the Lord's, the year, he says, of the Lord's favor. That word favor doesn't occur very often in the scriptures, and you could also translate it as acceptable. Now, it wouldn't make sense in the concept. The year of the Lord's acceptance, maybe. That, that's as close as we could come. A favor is a really good English translation, but we need to understand this announcement as Jesus intended it, and I think Isaiah 61 was even prophesying of this, this season, if you will, of God's favor specifically manifest in salvation, in what he's gonna do to rescue people who are in spiritual bondage. The greater context of all of this is liberty and freedom. And if you go back to Isaiah 61 and you read the whole passage, you'll realize that Jesus kind of stopped in the middle of a thought. Because Isaiah 61 prophesies that Messiah would come and, and he would bring with him a day of God's favor, but then he also goes on to talk about and the day of vengeance will arrive. But Jesus doesn't speak of that when he reads the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue on that particular Sabbath day. Do you know why? Because that's future. And that day of vengeance is still headed toward humanity. But it's not here yet. And that means we're still in this day of favor, this day of salvation. I'm confident that God is calling, calling some of you right now to believe, calling you right now to turn out of your spiritual slavery, out of the spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness and to repent of your sins, turn away from it, and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the day of salvation. So Jesus is announcing that a period of, of God's favor has begun. Now look at the text again, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Fixed on him for several different reasons. First of all, he's the hometown boy. And this may have been the very first time that he read in the synagogue. So this is a significant moment for them. And and they knew him, as, as the text indicates a little later, the son of Joseph, right? He's grown up here in Nazareth. He's attended, uh, uh, he's attended synagogue with us on many Sabbaths. The, Luke even notes that that was his habit to go there. But this is the day where he reads the Isaiah scroll. And, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And even the way, the, the way Luke writes this builds our expectation and anticipation, like what's gonna happen? And here it comes. He began to say to them, today, this scripture 
has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a way of saying, Everything that Isaiah said 750 years ago, everything that many of you have been hoping for, looking for, expecting, praying for, singing about even, in expectation, it begins now. It begins now, today. He doesn't mean fulfilled in the fullness of that where every little jot and tittle is fulfilled at that particular moment, but rather he's announcing it begins, and so it begins What a powerful thought as another author writes that the son of David brings not only a a future rule but also present release from sin and a reversal of the effects of Satan's presence in the world. Oh, this was was a a powerful moment. Now, what's curious though is to look at the, the response first of Nazareth and then of Capernaum. So we're gonna read a little bit beyond the portion that I Uh, read at the outset of the service, but notice with me, if you will, how Nazareth responds. Verse 22, it looks favorable initially because verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? That's amazing. The, the, The carpenter's son speaks as, as one who represents God. So they recognize the power in his words, the authority that is there. They recognize it's a message of of grace for people like them, but they don't recognize his true identity, and don't let this be lost on you. I know you didn't have the benefit of reading uh, Luke 1, verse 1, all the way up to uh, chapter 4, verse 15, before we jumped in at verse 16, but if you did, you would hear multiple testimonies, multiple witnesses from Gabriel himself to the angel who announced the birth of the Christ child in Luke 2 uh, to the spirit who at Christ's baptism descends upon Jesus and then God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All through those first four and a half chapters, you've had witness after witness after witness step forward and say, this is the son of God. But to these people at this moment, he's just the son of Joseph. And that's not actually accurate, is it? You see, that's because they're looking with these eyes and they're hearing with these ears. And they need eyes of the heart to be illuminated. They need ears of the soul to be opened to the truth of who this person really is. And that's why you come to verse 23 and Jesus jumps in before they can even say another word and says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we, ha- what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And, and you actually begin to see their skepticism. Like, we've heard the reports, but really? When does the show, the, the miracle show begin here? And sadly, verse 24, Jesus goes on to say, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They're not willing to receive him. They do, in fact, reject him. That's why Jesus speaks what would have been some really hard words for them to hear in verses 25 through 27 as he reminds them of a low point in Israel's history because as great as Elijah was, as great as Elisha was, those two men in their prophetic ministry in many ways were unparalleled. They ministered in a time where Israel was marked by gross sin and gross unbelief. And what Jesus is saying is, your ancestors forfeited healings, miracles, mighty works, and God sent those prophets outside of Israel to Gentile people. 
That would stir your heart and mine if we were sitting there in much the way if somebody walked and marched in here today and said, you know, all those rights and privileges and the great history that you enjoy as Americans, uh, it's going to be bundled up and sent over to China. So Jesus was touching on a great spiritual truth, but there would have been some, uh, a national nerve he hit as well. People who were living with the delusion that they were under God's blessing just by virtue of their birth. We're Jews. Of course we're God's favored people. But what they couldn't see is that in rejecting Jesus, they were demonstrating that they had already rejected God. And isn't it remarkable? Look at verse 28 with me again. As Luke describes the response, they are so angry, filled with wrath, that they rose up, verse 29, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They failed to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. And consequently, they failed to experience any of the blessing that he had come to bring. I wonder if you recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Well, I think he's a great teacher and had a lot of great truth. Clearly, he was a deeply spiritual leader. Some of you might even say, mm, I'm not even sure he really existed. I mean, it, it's possible, like, this is just all myth, right? The Apostle John wrote, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What's in your heart with reference to Christ today? Well, as we continue reading through the story, Jesus leaves Nazareth and he heads to Capernaum. Oops. Look at verse 31 with me, please. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Astonished. It sounds close to marveling. And it is in many ways. But there's something else taking place here because Jesus is not only preaching and teaching with authority, but now Luke records uh, an event that unfolds. And you're going to see a completely different response of this community after a series of events unfold here. And in verse 33, it begins as he exercises his authority over Satan and the demonic realm. There was a man who had, this, had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting that he knows and recognizes what Nazareth failed to recognize. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, still in Capernaum. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any 
who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son, not of Joseph, not an ordinary man. You are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. What a remarkable moment this is and what a remarkable difference or contrast uh, Capernaum is from Nazareth. So he exercises authority over Satan and demons while the people are astonished and amazed and demonstrates what he has been proclaiming by reading the Isaiah scroll. I mean, this is part of the liberty that he has come. And, and it's not just a physical condition that you know, needs a little medication or a little encouragement and you know, send that guy out. No, there is a spiritual oppression, a demonic oppression that has radically altered this man's existence, and Jesus is the liberator. I remember a number of years ago, a young mom uh, made an appointment to see me at our church in South Carolina, and one of the first things she said as, as we began to talk is, Pastor Brooks, you're gonna, think, you're gonna think I'm crazy. And I was like, why would you say that? And she says, because I, I think I... I see and have encountered demons. And I said, I don't think you're crazy. And I'll never forget, her eyes were like big. And she said, really? And I said, no, they're real. And she began to tell me uh, several illustrations of how um, demonic forces manifested themselves to her over a period of time. And her husband confirmed it. And you know, in the one sense, it it was... um, I, I would say there's a certain fearfulness that arises and certainly in her heart, but she was reluctant to confess that because, you know, in our day and age, we're, we're, we're still riding the wave of the enlightenment where we think we're so educated and intellectual that like those things are just myth and they don't really exist, but they do. We have an adversary who's described as a roaring lion who's on the prowl looking for those that he may devour and he's not the only one who operates on planet earth. And I would not want anyone here to be dismissive of, of this same kind of demonic power and, and don't be hasty to dismiss it if you've never experienced and likewise if some of you say, man, I, maybe we need to talk. Yeah, maybe we do. Because Jesus came to liberate us from the powers of darkness. What was beautiful in that context is we just began to talk about the gospel. There's no special incantations or you know, magic hocus pocus uh, to, to make the demonic forces leave, and Kristen was involved in that too. And you know what was interesting? We actually did identify some, some personal sin in her heart and in that household that, that needed to be repented of and turned away, but we also looked at some simple scriptures that teach us things like this. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, to invoke the powerful blood that he shed shed on Calvary's cross to not only cleanse us from our sins, but to bring us into a whole new existence, a whole new identity. We are are descendants of the risen Christ, spiritually speaking, to, to just lead her through powerful scriptures that helped her understand her true identity in Jesus, the power of his forgiveness, the power of his liberation, And it stopped. 
All glory to God. I would say to you, in all sincerity and with humility and faith, if, if you experience encounters with darkness, we should talk. There is liberty in Jesus. Now Jesus moves uh, from this powerful moment uh, in, into another demonstration of his authority, and that is with Simon's mother-in-law. We don't know great details, but the, the fever must have been great. She seems to be bedridden and immobilized, unable to carry on with life, and I, and I love how Luke describes very simply that he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she ro- rose and began to serve them. Now notice, if you will, though, that as these crowds line up after her recovery, word begins to spread, and you can imagine, right, whether you're the one with an issue, an illness, or some kind of demonic demonization. Verse 40, all those who had any who were sick and various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. See, again, this is, this is what he's talking about when he reads Isaiah 61 and says, today this has been fulfilled. Like, the kingdom has arrived because the king with all of his kingly authority has arrived. And, and just kind of tying all these things together, the demon is afraid that the king has arrived to destroy him. And the king has arrived to move that opposition off of territory that has always been owned by Jesus. But Jesus says, you know what, this man that you've tried to possess, he's mine. Go. Those illnesses that really are the result of of our own sin, because sin brought death into the world and all the diseases that accompany that, the king has arrived to begin to to reverse all of that. And so verse 42 says, the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Oh, how different that is from Nazareth. They want to move him out of town, actually shove him off a cliff because he's a threat to their thinking, he's a threat to their particular lifestyle, a threat to, to their particular traditions, probably all kinds of things there. So Capernaum is not only astonished, but they seek him, they come to him, and they say, remain with us. They wanna remain in his presence. Let me just touch on chapter five. You'll have to read it in its entirety, but there's a beautiful story of a leper who is healed. And then go to verse 17 with me, because here again, the physical healing becomes a gateway for powerful physical truth. And this will will bring us to a third component of his authority, his authority over Satan and demons, uh, his his authority over sickness and disease. And this is gonna open the door to where we see his authority. And I think this is the greatest expression of it over sin itself. Look at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now now they're willing to travel miles. I mean, word is spreading. Something's up. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Well, shouldn't be surprised by that, right? He said, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's surprising, isn't it? Like, wait, paralysis is this guy's issue? Oh, but Jesus sees beyond the physical manifestation uh, of the 
the woe that sin has worked. And he pronounces a word of forgiveness. Now, this really sets things off, right? Look at verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There you go, a question of identity. Who does he think he is? Well, Luke's been telling us he's the son of God. Here's another group that doesn't quite get it. Now, verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Now, that's a little bit of a conundrum. And most of us are familiar enough with the story to know which of the two really is harder. But if you put yourself in that immediate context, well, it's easier to say words. Because we can't really see forgiveness going on, can we? We can't really see that, that cleansing of sin and the removal of guilt. We can't see that, that spiritual stuff. We can see when a guy who's been paralyzed gets up and walks away. So in one sense, the question probably should be answered. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And I think Jesus is clearly anticipating that, but he's not going to leave it there, is he? No, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man, because that's who I am, and that's a reference all the way back to Daniel's prophecy. It doesn't just mean I'm descended, you know, the incarnation side of, of Christ's identity. This is the one that Daniel said would come at the end of the age to judge and rule the world. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and Luke inserts this, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Yeah, I guess you have. You know what I love about this story? Is that through the miraculous physical healing, the Lord is actually showing us the, the, the miraculous spiritual healing that he's able to bring to sinners. And beloved, when God forgives you, you are truly free from the debt of that sin. It's paid in full, and you are free from the debilitating guilt, the debilitating shame, the paralyzing fear and memories that sometimes keep you enslaved. This is part of what Jesus meant when he opens the Isaiah scroll and says, I have come today to proclaim liberty. Liberty from demons, yes, liberty from disease, but I think most significantly, liberty from your sins. And if some of you were really honest and could sit down with the author of that article and say, you know what depresses me when I even allow my mind to go there is some of the horrible things that I've done in the past or things that I've said or even thought that I know they're not only offensive to God, but I've hurt other people and I've hurt my family and hurt my household. And Jesus arrives and says, I don't want you to live in that prison house of guilt and shame and fear any longer. I am the great liberator. I have the authority and power to forgive Give your sins. And it's such a beautiful image to me because sin does paralyze us. And some of you have been lying on the mat of your past sin for a long time, unable to move. And Jesus comes to you today in the authority of this word and says, it's time to get up. You are forgiven. I have cleansed away your past. I've removed the guilt. And while the memories may be there, you don't need to go there anymore. Get up. Go home. Live your life in the glory of my authority. 
So many of us are just like, oh, I just can't do this. And we choose to stay on the mat. And Jesus came to break you out of the prison that that mat is. He came to set us free. And he's calling some of you right now to leave the darkness of your conscience and the guilt and shame and humiliation and walk away whole, clean, pure, positioned by Christ himself to serve the year of the Lord's favor, that hardly begins to describe the realm of this king. Where is your heart today? First of all, do you see yourself as you really are? Nazareth couldn't, wouldn't. They're literally running Jesus out of town because he's a threat. And it makes them angry that he would say that kind of stuff. Capernaum, on the other hand, in many ways, no different from Nazareth, but willing to see their need and recognize that he's the liberator from demonic oppression. He's the healer from physical disease. And in the case of the paralytic, he is the great priest who comes and absolves of sin and cleanses and removes it away. Oh, the cross is clearly in view. And if you see yourself as you really are and recognize that it's not just a season of holiday blues or Christmas depression, but maybe God in his kindness has allowed you, allowed you to experience some of those dark thoughts in your heart so that you would say, I need Jesus. And for those who know their spiritual poverty and recognize the bankruptcy, whether it be of a religious system and effort or just a whole secular way of living, but both separate from this Lord Jesus, there's good news. The deliverer has come. The healer is here. And the forgiver is alive. That's who Jesus is. Do you know him? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you that you entered this world so darkened and damaged by sin, death everywhere, demons running loose, as it were, to oppress and pose us, those who've been created in your image to know you. You came to a world that in large part was so confused in its self-righteousness and self-made religions from Judaism to Samaritanism to the polytheism of the day, and yet you entered the world and began to proclaim good news. Thank you. And thank you that you were anointed of the Spirit. Thank you that at this moment your authority to set it all aright has not been diminished, and though we cannot see you, though we could not travel to a house where you reside and pull back the roof tiles and lower a, a paralyzed friend as that group did, you are still able to heal our hearts, our bodies, our minds, our spirits. And oh Lord Jesus, we, we beseech you to bring that healing into this place. There are some who have been paralyzed for a long time by their sin 
paralyzed by the guilt and fear and shame. Liberate their souls. Lord Jesus, take them to the foot of Calvary and let them see with the eyes of their heart the blood that is shed for them. Let them hear with the ears of their soul the cry from the cross, it is finished. Let it become so personal and so powerful that they rise from the paralysis of past sin and walk to the glory of God. Live in the joy of this great king. Oh, let the cry of our hearts be joy to the world. The Lord is come. Now, Lord, by your same powerful spirit, seal to our hearts the words and presence of Jesus and just cause us to walk out the remainder of this day in the sweet assurance that the king has come, that this is the day, the year of God's favor. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.